Good morning, everyone. Um, we're concluding our series in the book of Genesis, looking at the life of Abraham this morning. Uh, next week, we're going to move into a new series in the book of Hebrews. Um, we're not going to have a reading this morning uh, because I really want us to... I'm going to retell the story uh, all the way through the sort of sermon this morning. So rather than it being read and then simply repeated... Um, I'm going to tell the story as we go. Um, and just to say as well, in a, in a few moments, we're going to watch a short video clip because it's quite bright outside. If there's those who are near a window who know how these things work, if we could just close a few blinds, that might help us to see the video uh, in a few moments' time. But if you have a Bible, um, why don't you turn up Genesis chapter 22. Uh, keep it open in front of you and we'll be, we'll be turning to it uh, throughout this morning. Do you remember last week, I stuck up on the screen behind me um, the impossible box. It just simply said, it's just impossible. And I asked you to put into that box whatever it was in your life which you would consider to be an impossibility, where you need God to move in a really powerful way. And then if you remember last week, we ended by seeing what you now see on the screen behind you. Perhaps the most impossible thing uh, for any of us is... That God would love us and show us mercy. If you consider your heart as I think about my heart and all the ways that we turn our back on the living God. All the ways that he gives us every breath that we breathe and yet we so easily live our life with ourselves at the center. What an impossibility that God would love us and show mercy on us. And yet we saw remarkably the Bible shows us that it is a possibility. In fact, God does love us. He does show us the most incredible love in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. Remember, to try and sum up where we've been, in chapter 16 and 17, we saw that God meets us in our doubts by his grace. And then in chapters 18 and 19, we saw that God meets us in our rebellion by his mercy. And we brought the two ideas together last week, considering grace and mercy. Grace being given a gift that I don't deserve. Mercy being given, not being given something that I do deserve, the right judgment of God. And as we move into chapter 22, to finish the sort of the life and the story of Abraham, what we do is we see the grace and mercy of God come together. So I hope that we're going to sort of come full circle and draw together threads of the previous weeks. Well, we're going to see a little video clip now from a famous film that's been made into a, a film and, and lots of theatre, Les Miserables. Many of you will have seen it. Set in 19th century France during the French Revolution. And the key character in this story is Jean Valjean. And this, the clip starts with him on a very dark night being thrust out of the accommodation that he's in. And he's beaten, he's left on the street on a dark night in the howling rain. He's starving. And it's a little picture of how the world treats a criminal. But then notice what happens in the rest of the video as somebody else meets Jean Valjean and treats him very differently. If we could just watch this three-minute clip. Powerful clip, isn't it? Here's this man who the world treats like rubbish. He's left to die on a street. The kindly bishop takes him in. How does he respond to the love of the bishop? He throws it back in his face by stealing from his house. And then when he's brought back and he deserves the judgment and right punishment, what does he do? He's not just let off. He's given graciously, freely, all these incredible gifts. And it's a wonderful picture of the gospel, isn't it? Because here in that little video clip, you see the grace and the mercy of the bishop come together. He's given something he doesn't deserve, forgiveness. And he's not given something he does deserve, punishment. And it's a little window into our passage this morning. So come to chapter 22 with me. 
Notice verse 1, sometime later. I made the point a few weeks ago. In narrative, sometimes silence still speaks. We don't know what's been going on. The writer doesn't tell us. But lots has been going on as God has been teaching Abraham through this period, working on his heart, preparing him for this really, really important chapter. And we read verse 1 that God tests Abraham. He says, Abraham. And Abraham replies, here I am, Lord. Of course, Abraham's probably expecting... Um, maybe a, an instruction. Abraham, I want you now to go to this place. Maybe he's expecting a renewal of a covenant that's been spoken first in chapter 12 and then outworked in chapter 15 and outworked again in chapter 17. But what comes next to him is some, something that he could never have expected in his wildest dreams. Then God said, verse 2, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Now, there's a great emphasis on all these words. Remember the story of Abraham. Take your son. Abraham has struggled to have a son all of his life. Son is a very evocative term in Genesis for Abraham. Take your son. Take your only son. Not a delinquished child, but the son that you love. Take Isaac. Who's Isaac? The one through whom the promise would come. The writer is trying to draw a lot of attention. Take your son, your only son. The son you love, Isaac, and go to Moriah. And Abraham's thinking, okay, well, this is the next part of the journey. Off we go. And then he's hit with an absolute bombshell. And you and I are left thinking, what kind of God do we worship? Is this some sort of sick joke? Notice what he says, verse 2. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain that I will show you. Last week was a horrific passage of immorality which shocked us. This should shock us in a sense even more. What on earth is God doing? Saying to Abraham, kill him. This is the case is not talking about some sort of symbolic sacrifice like the covenant of circumcision in chapter 17. He's talking about a real sacrifice. Abraham's thinking, God, are you crazy? You're telling me to kill someone? And you're telling me to kill my only son, whom I've waited all of my life to have, and I only had him miraculously? You're telling me to kill the very one through whom the promise would come. Lord, if I kill my son, how will the promise ever be fulfilled? I imagine Abraham felt a little bit like a mouse being played by a cat. What kind of God is this who would tell me to kill my son? Abraham, I'm sure, has heard of the occult in the land that ultimately his descendants would have land in in cana child sacrifice people who did sacrifice their children believing that the gods would be blessed it's a false religion it's a false understanding but abraham is probably thinking here lord i thought you were different to the other gods the false gods why are you asking me to do what the foreign nations do and the problem with this story i think as i reflect on this week is that we read the sort of children's books on this story and it's all been nicely sanitized and we read this story God says to Abraham, go and kill your son. And we kind of go, all right, well, I know the ending of the story. I'll just breeze on through it. But let this sink in. What on earth is going on? God is telling him to kill someone, to kill his only son whom he loves, to kill the son through whom the promise is going to be delivered. But notice verse 1. We're told this is a test. It's not a temptation. James chapter 1 verse 13 tells us that God does not tempt us. But sometimes he does test us. He's testing Abraham's obedience. And he's testing if Abraham is prepared to trust in his sovereign promises. Now this shouldn't surprise us. Just to the next book of the Bible in Exodus. God is going to tell his people 
that they're to sacrifice the first of everything. Exodus 22, verse 29. Don't hold back your offerings. You must give me the firstborn of your sons. Do the same with your cattle and your sheep. Let them stay with their mothers for seven days, but give them to me on the eighth day. It's a biblical law, a principle that's meant to be saying to God's people, put me first. And a helpful way of doing that is to put the first of all that you have, including your grain and your livestock, and give it to me. Your very best, give it to me. And trust that I will provide. It's where the principle for our giving is rooted. Not giving out of what's left when I've done everything I want to do, but giving out of all that God has first given me, and then I use what is left. Just want to ask us a little question as we pause here. Think of your primary allegiance to the God who made you. If you're a Christian, you know that's ultimately where your allegiance should be. If you're not yet trusting in Christ, the Bible calls you to have that allegiance. But wherever you stand, think about that allegiance. What is it in your life that maybe tests that primary allegiance to putting God above everything else? I wonder what it would be for you. As I've thought about that for myself in my heart this week, it's been pretty challenging. Do I love God above everyone and everything else? Sadly not. Just this week, uh, down in High Wycombe, when I was at Amjad and Sarah's house, spending time, time praying for Muslims during Ramadan and hearing from some Pakistani Muslims who've come to faith in Christ. And one man was telling us that at the moment, the persecution for Christians in Pakistan is utterly horrific. Churches burned, houses burned, lives lost, people who are accused of doing something they've not done and then taken to court and put in prison. Horrific persecution. And yet here are people who are prepared to say, my allegiance is with Christ and you can lock me up, you can even kill me. But he comes first. It's astonishing allegiance to God as number one. It should challenge all of us. But that seems to be the test that God is putting to Abraham here in the chapter. And come to verse 3. Early the next morning, Abraham gets up and loads up his donkey. Now just imagine what's going through Abraham's head all night. Take your son, your only son, the one you love, Isaac. I bet that phrase is ringing through his head all night. Take your son, your only son, the one you love, Isaac. He's not sleeping. Of course he's not sleeping. And he gets up early in the morning and he starts this 45-mile journey from Beersheba to Moriah. It would have taken three days. Of course, he didn't stop to say goodbye to his wife, Sarah. That would have been a fairly awkward conversation. Abraham, where are you off to today? Oh, just a bit of a lad's and dad's walking trip. <laughs> Gulp. Abraham knows exactly what's going to happen. And so he slips away in the early morning with his son, Isaac. Now remember this is 50 years on from Genesis chapter 12 verse 4 where God had first called Abraham and said go to this land that I will show you. But remarkably despite all the twists and turns and times where Abraham's faith has been challenged and tested we read in chapter 12 verse 4 so Abraham left. Incredible trust. Or in chapter 17 when we're told he's instructed to circumcise the firstborn male son and we read Verse 23 of chapter 17, on that very day, little clues all the way through the narrative that Abraham is trusting God, even when he can't see the future, even when he can't understand. As you reflect on your own life, faith should not be rooted in what I get out of it. Faith should be rooted in my commitment to God. And if my commitment to God calls me to suffer 
then it calls me to suffer. And we have it easy in this country. And most of us are not going to lose our lives for our faith. But there are plenty of Christians around the world who are prepared to. But if we're not to lose our life, in a metaphorical sense, we are to lose our life. To give up everything to put Christ first and honor him above everything else. Above our work, above our hobbies, above our families, above our spouses. He comes first. And the more that we love him, actually the more that we'll love other people. That's the way it works. Well, carry on in the the story. It's it's a frightening story, isn't it? Verse 3, he takes his servants and he takes Isaac. He takes enough wood for the burnt offering and he goes to the place that God tells him. Verse 4, on the third day, Abraham looks up and he sees the place in the distance. Can you imagine what's been going through Abraham's heart as he's journeyed these three long days? He wouldn't have slept for three nights either. And then he says to his servants, stay here with the donkey a while. I and the boy will go over there. We will worship And then we'll come back to you. How is he able to say those words? He knows exactly what God has instructed him to do. He knows he's going to have to come back to his servants and go, oh, by the way, I've just killed my son. And it's a strange thing to say, isn't it? We will worship knowing that he's going to sacrifice his son. How on earth is the sacrifice, the death of someone, worship? Well, wrestle with that. Try and join up the dots and we'll see where that comes to at the end. Then verse 6, Abraham takes the wood for the burnt offering. He places it on his son Isaac and he carries with him the fire and the knife. And the two of them go on together. This is not a lads and dads walking holiday. And then Isaac speaks to his son. Verse 7, father. Yes, my son, Abraham replies. The fire and wood are here. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Isaac knows the law. He understands what God's instructions are. The burnt offering was one of the sacrificial offerings that God's people were called to perform. And the idea was that they would take an animal and burn it to a cinder. And it was meant to be representative of the total annihilation of sin. And so quite rightly, he's saying, okay, we're here. I understand we've come to sacrifice. But Father, where is the sacrifice? And I do not know how Abraham was able to even utter these words. But look, verse 8. Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them go on a further. And I'm sure that the lump in Abraham's throat is growing bigger. His mouth would have been dry. His palms would have been sweating. He has this primary allegiance to God. And yet every bone in his body is saying, Abraham, what are you doing? Verse 9, they get to the place that God had told them about. Abraham builds an altar there. He arranges the wood on it. And then this is what's really puzzling in this story. We just read, he bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Problem with this passage is I think it's one of the examples where our Old Testament theology is conditioned often by the storybooks that we read to our children, many of which are good. But in all the storybooks, you see Abraham and you see this little boy. And they've wandered hand in hand up to this sacrifice. And then Abraham has placed his little son Isaac on top. As if Isaac could do nothing about it because his father's much stronger. But that's not what had happened at all. Isaac, by this time, would have been 20 years old. It's not like in the storybooks. He would have been a strapping man. His father Abraham was an old man. If Isaac wanted to fight him off, of course he could have done it. He was in the prime of his life. 
So why does the writer seem to suggest that he just lays him on the altar and, and there's no, some, no sort of altercation? There's no fight, there's no running. What on earth is going on? Maybe to start with, Isaac's thinking, oh, this is a bit of a joke, oh, very funny. God will provide, oh, you're going to put your son on the, on, on the sacrifice. Now, God, now, now Father, where, where is the sacrificial lamb? But that's not what happens at all. Now, this is speculation because the passage doesn't tell us, but we do know that Abraham is 20 years old. He's not put on this fire to be burnt, to be killed. He's not laid on this altar to be killed against his own volition. I'm sure there's been conversation between them. And Isaac has seen his father growing up, and he's seen the extraordinary trust that his father has. And he knows full well that God made a promise that through his son Isaac, God's promises would be fulfilled. They would have been talking Isaac would have been learning from the faith of his father. And it seems, and it is bizarre, it seems like Isaac was willingly giving himself to be sacrificed. Almost thinking, well, if it's, this is what it's going to take for the promises to my father to come true, I will willingly lay down my life. If that isn't the case, why on earth would he have just laid down and just said, well, it doesn't matter. He knows something of what is going on. He's seen something of God in his father and he's prepared to trust this is the promise that God made the chapter earlier it's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned or counted and maybe Isaac at this point realized he had to die in order for this promise to be fulfilled but we also get a little clue to maybe what was going on in Abraham's heart at least or maybe the conversation between the two of them because you come to the New Testament to Hebrews chapter 11 and this is what we read By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his son, his only son. Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. This is a little clue that Abraham seemed to believe even if he did the most horrific thing and killed his son, he had trust that God could raise his son again and fulfill his promise through him. And it seems that Isaac must have had that same trust because he seemed to be able to be prepared to willingly lay down his life. And then we read verse 10. Then he reached out his hand, he took the knife to slay his son. I bet you've never had a pastor draw a knife on you in church. I promise I'll put it away. But just want you to imagine the scene. He's there standing over his only son. The son through whom he's going to fulfill his promise. The son he loves dearly. He was only given to him through a miraculous birth. And he stands there with a knife about to kill his son. Such is his obedience to God. Remember the impossible box. It's just impossible that God would love me and show me his mercy. And yet we see in the Bible that it is possible. What I want to do as we draw some of this together now is to see that this story of Abraham and Isaac on Mount Moriah is meant to be a picture, a story, a little story pointing forward to a much bigger story. And there's deep, deep parallels between the two. We'll see that there's a great substitute which points forward to the great substitute. We see that there are great promises made, which points forward to the great promise. So come to verse 11. 
But the angel of the Lord calls out from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, he's there, poised with a knife. He calls out to him, stop. And Abraham says, here I am. Do not lay a hand on the boy. Don't do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. See, the test of verse 1 that God is putting Abraham through is asking him this question. Do you love me above everything else? And will you trust me even in an impossible situation? And here's the remarkable thing. Look what happens at that very moment. Verse 13. Abraham looks up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. He was there poised to kill his son as a sacrifice. But God miraculously provided a substitute. And instead of plunging the knife into his son, he plunged it into the ram that miraculously was caught up in the thicket. And the ram was killed. God will provide. The very words that God had spoken himself to Abraham, and the words then that Abraham had said to his son when he asked him the question, And so Abraham calls the place, the Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. It is a horrific story. And what's really puzzling as you read it is it seems to just move very, very quickly. And there doesn't seem to be any emotion in the story. Where's Abraham's emotion? The writer doesn't tell us. Where's Isaac's emotion? What's going on? Why does it seem to rush through all of the adrenaline, all of of what would have been going on in the heart? The reason is the writer is not trying to draw attention to that scene. The writer is trying to draw attention to what that scene points forward to. What was that scene going to achieve? That is where the focus should be. It's not that the writer has no humanity. It's not that Abraham has no humanity. But the writer is not drawing attention to the emotion. The writer is drawing attention to the truth. I want to show us how this little story, as horrific as it is, points forward to an even greater story in the New Testament, Jesus Christ. And I'm going to do that by comparing the Genesis story and the Gospel story. Notice verse 8. God says, I will provide the sacrifice. And when you consider the greatest sacrifice, the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, who provided that sacrifice? God did. Notice in our story, verse 6, Isaac carries wood on his back for the sacrifice. Who was it who carried wood on his back to go to his death? Jesus Christ. Notice verse 9, Isaac is bound on the altar. Who was it that was bound and nailed to a cross? Isaac was to be sacrificed on Mount Moriah. Well, where was Jesus sacrificed? On Mount Moriah. That is where Jerusalem was built. Notice too that Isaac's obedience. Sorry, um, Isaac was the greatest sacrifice that Abraham could have ever offered. Remember verse 2? Take your son, your only son, the one you love, Isaac. He's the very best that that Abraham could have given. And when God the Father sent his son into the world as a sacrifice for the sin of the world, what did he give? His son. His only son. The son he loved Jesus Christ. I notice that Abraham's obedience led to the fulfillment of a promise. And wasn't it not the Lord Jesus Christ's obedience on the cross that led to the fulfillment of a promise? 
by showing us these parallels, I'm not trying to be clever and find something in the New Testament that seems similar to the story. This isn't about being clever. It's there for a reason, because every story in the Bible is meant to point forward to the story. Every story in the Bible has a parallel or a link or something that points forward to the great story. Every sacrifice in the Old Testament is pointing forward to the great sacrifice. So this isn't me trying to be clever. This is the parallel. God in his genius is telling his story and using this story as a picture of an even greater story. Think about the promises that God has made. Verse 15. The angel of the Lord calls to Abraham from heaven for a second time and says, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will bless you. Was there a greater blessing for Abraham than to have been given a substitute in the place of his son? A little fulfillment of the promise God made in chapter 12. And then he goes on and says, and your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Was not saving Isaac a little beginning of a fulfillment of that promise? Because if he had killed his son, he would have killed the promise. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of your enemies. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. The promises God has made fulfilled ultimately in the promise in Jesus Christ. And this little substitute in this story fulfilled ultimately in the substitute of Jesus Christ on the cross. Was it not Abraham's obedience that led to the fulfillment of the promise? And was it not the Lord Jesus Christ's obedience that led to an ultimate fulfillment of all God's promises? That instead of the right anger and wrath of God falling on you and on me for all the wrong that we've done, it falls on someone who doesn't deserve it in our place. That is what is so powerful about Genesis chapter 22 and this story of Abraham and Isaac. Les Miserables is an incredible story, an amazing story where grace and mercy meet. And Jean Valjean is shown grace. He's given a gift that he doesn't deserve, forgiveness. And he's shown mercy, not given something he does deserve, anger. But that's just a little picture. It is nothing compared to the cross of Christ, is it? Because the cross of Christ is the place where the substitute gives up his life for you and me. And he did not deserve to be there. And yet at the cross, as we've seen in recent weeks, to put it all together now, God meets us in our struggles and weakness by his grace. He meets us in our rebellion by his mercy. And the two come together perfectly in the cross of Christ. The sinless one pays for the guilty one that you and I can go free. And that is the marvel of the gospel. When John, at the beginning of his gospel, sees Jesus, you'll know the words in John chapter 1 verse 29. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And as I close now, I don't want to call us to do anything to respond in any way other than to simply do that, to behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That is the most incredible act of love that's ever been shown in this world. The sinless one who gives up his life for the guilty one, that we can go free. There was a sacrifice and a substitute 
in this story in Genesis 22. But it's just a shadow of the great sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. So should we take a moment just to behold God, to reflect on his love and his mercy. And I'll give you a moment to pour out your heart to a God who loves you so perfectly in Jesus. Lord God, the creator of the universe, the one who has held the oceans in his hands. We want to behold you afresh this morning. Lord, forgive us because so often we have such a big view of ourselves, such a tiny view of you. We can run our lives rushing around so frantically with our own agendas that we don't even have time to sit still and behold you. To consider your faithfulness, to consider your grace, to consider your mercy, just to allow your love to so flood our hearts that it casts out all fear. Lord, we're busy people in an ever busier and frantic world, so please forgive us where sometimes we can be so busy with our own agendas or even so busy seeking to serve you that we don't stop to behold you. But Lord, in this moment of quiet, we do thank you for the great sacrifice of Christ Jesus in our place, the one who did not deserve to be there, but willingly went to the cross so that we can be forgiven for all the wrong that we've done. Not just telling us about your love, not even an example of your your love, but a true sacrifice in our place. Lord, we do indeed behold you this morning. And my prayer as we move from here to sing our final song, as we go to coffee together, that we wouldn't just rush off and the devil snatch away this moment of beholding you. But by your spirit, you would give us an ever-growing vision of you. And that the gospel message would never become so familiar to us that it doesn't cease to amaze us of how you have loved us. Behold our God, seated on his throne. Come, let us adore him. Amen.